Pearson is very pleased to sponsor this series of JogPod. Pearson provide a blend of content, curricula, assessment and training to make the teaching and learning of geography at GCSE and A-level more engaging and effective. For more information about our geography qualifications, please visit us at qualls.pearson.com forward slash geography or follow us on Twitter at edxl underscore jog. Hello there, welcome to JogPod. Today I'm joined by another wonderful guest, Kit Rackley. Kit, you're pretty well known to a lot of educators, I think. You've had 13 years of experience in the classroom, uh, of which seven were director of geography. Then you led the department through the GA's Quality Mark and Centre of Excellence, which is um, an excellent process, but pretty hard work. Then after a spell as the Education and Programme Officer at the World Energy and Meteorological Council, you now splitting your time, aren't you? Freelancing as an educational blogger. You're an author, you're a consultant, you're a speaker and a trainer. You've produced some wonderful resources, which we'll talk about because some are coming on the GA website fairly soon. And you're also working for the University of East Anglia as a, a higher education champion. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, John. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, it's always a wonderful time having a, a chat with a geographer. You clearly do identify yourself as a geographer. I know because I've read you said how being one and especially being a teacher has formed your identity as a person. I, I do think quite a few geography teachers might say that. I know that sometimes I'm a bit of a heart sink when I'm out walking because they'll say, oh, God, no, don't let John go again. He's going to start talking about the geology or the landscape or whatever. So what, is, what do you mean by that in terms of identifying as a geographer? We, we do invoke that reaction, don't we, where people just look <laughs> at us and go, oh, no, here they go again. <laughs> um, but it, very similar, really. It's, you get a completely new way of looking at the world. And, and for me, that kind of almost does change who you are as a person. So when I, when I, I loved geography, when I was in school, I had, I had a, a fantastic teacher who, who, um, you know, didn't get up and do whiz bang things, but would, would very, very, would sit at the front of the classroom and paint pictures with his words and just let your imagination run with it. And I really got the concept of things very, very well, by the way that he used to teach. And, and I just started finding myself, you know, that, that cliche that sometimes say of geographers, that you start having x-ray vision almost or a superpower where you can see deeper than than the average eye so i started walking around town and seeing all these processes human processes take place i started going to the coast and i was almost i was like i could swear blind i could see longshore drip happening you know longshore drift happening just with my naked eye um when really i was just projecting the fact that i knew it was happening and you could hear the the, chain, the, the, the jingle of the shingle and um and from that point on i knew I wanted to be a geographer and I was a geographer because everyone else around me couldn't see it, couldn't hear it, couldn't feel it, but I could. So now I was like, ah, so maybe this is part. And of course I've then now gone and progressed uh, through my career and more training and everything like that. So I've just embedded myself more and more as an ident identifying as a geographer. And I can't go out now and thinking about that extra two or three levels deep of what's going on around us. So that's really how I do like that idea of painting pictures. You know, I'm, go I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man here, but when the uh, when the three part lesson came out, and it was all about pace and challenge, pace and challenge, this sort of thing. The teachers who could paint pictures with words were less revered. They were they, their style was wrong for the time, mm. and and I think we lost it. Me personally wait for the twitter complaints but i think we lost a bit there from people who could do that painting pictures yeah it's it's such it, it in a way it's a shame that that i mean what has endured over time if you think before the time of written history it's storytelling isn't it that's what has endured over time before we had things and records that could be and of, of course even the earlier written histories have been lost but everything that's endured and the things that, that underpin communities have been the storytellers, the elders that tell the stories, the indigenous populations that have passed down through generations and generations through stories. And so it seems completely alien and counterproductive not to allow that as a, as a, as a core aspect of teaching. 
So I used to love telling stories as, as a geography teacher and, and learning that from my old geography teacher, Mr. Somerville uh, himself. So yeah, that, I, I agree with you. It's a bizarre concept to me that that wouldn't be part of the, te- at least not just a part of a teacher's toolkit, but part of their soul, really. David, uh, no, it wasn't. It was Duncan Hawley. Duncan Hawley gave me, um, we, we, were doing, we were doing some work on literacy and he gave me a book with some stories in from people who uh, had been involved in um, a volcanic eruption. And the stories were so much more evocative and it gave us so much more information. Mm. This was even at, a, this was at AS level at the time. So the AS level was quite dry. The, the stories really excited the students to find out more um, uh, but I know sometimes we'll say we haven't got enough time for that sort of thing we've got to get through but it, the, the, the stories were, were the, the bit of it that really fired up the imagination. Yeah I can give you very one brief example before moving on was um, we know that student, uh, many students really do enjoy the, the you know plate tectonics and natural hazards because of the whiz-bang spectacular impact way of you know you don't have to be a fabulous teacher to really have an impact when you're teaching tectonics or or, or natural hazards but the, of course the, the the children miss the nuance they miss the real life impacts they don't really empathize with the real life implications of people suffering through these events and so telling us uh, there was this wonderful uh, i can't remember now it was, i think it was a cnn article of a, of a rescue worker a Mex- uh, rescue worker called hector mendez from mexico who went over to haiti and he was part of of led uh, the topos which is the moles and he used to volunteer his time and go digging around in haiti and so i converted this interview with him which was a beautiful piece just people can search for it. Hector Mendes Haiti CNN they'll find it um, it's a heart-wrenching beautiful story about how he's trying to find the survivors and things like that and I won't give away spoilers I won't give away the ending but I turned that into a into a drama activity because my second specialism is in drama and I and I was a teacher in role as Hector Mendes and let's put it this way the the understanding the empathy uh, and the realization that was generated in the atmosphere with those students was palpable. You could cut it mm. with a knife at the end of it. Um, reflecting on it now, I, I think I think I would have built in five or ten minutes of of mental health self you know care. I think at the end of that, it was that <laughs> thick, but it was wonderful. And I tell you what, the, the students have come back to me and say they've never forgotten that, and now they realise how much of an impact you know natural hazards can have on real life people. And of course, a segue maybe to moving on to what we're going to talk about soon is of course now we're having those impacts coming a lot more close to home they're not far off in lands of of uh, of haiti's of mexico's of the philippines and stuff like that but but um we're now starting to get a lot more tangible impacts with natural hazards here in the united kingdom so it's a very important feeling to to connect with well that is interesting because I, I did want to ask you about um the work that you're doing on climate change i know you've developed some resources that coming soon folks to the to the <laughs> ga website but you've done a lot and uh, you did a presentation at the GAZ conference in April. But your line was climate change is a safeguarding issue. And you've just talked a little bit about mental health there. And then you wrote an article that followed this up and we'll do the links to all of these. So there's an article in the GA Autumn 2020 magazine. What was interesting for me as well was that as you were doing that e-conference, you ran a survey at the same time. Uh, sort of what, 49 people took part and um, three of them, I, I know, perhaps they, they didn't quite get the nuance, disagreed that climate change is a safeguarding issue. The rest did agree with you, but how, how did you set that up? What was your premise that climate change is a safeguarding issue? Oh, wow. So, so obviously we all know that safeguarding is a massive part of our job. And I think, I think we go through some really rigorous training and the realization came to me when you when when learning about protective factors, risk factors that exacerbate um, students' well-being and things like that, there was a single line in one massive document from the government for about mental health in schools, support mental health in schools, about how um, environmental factors can be a can be a risk, you know, negative environmental factors could be a risk factor to, to children's mental health, and that was it nothing else. You look through the whole of the, there was no other reference to the environment. And then you look at the safeguarding document and it just references that mental health document. And then I start to um, 
look at people's work like uh, Clover Hogan, Force of Nature, wonderful young person who's 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 taken her experiences through life through and then looking at things like called cli uh, climate anxiety, eco anxiety, or or that kind of thing, ecophobia because of because of all of these negative emotions that are coming through. And I just thought to myself, hang on a minute, we're missing something here. Many senior leadership teams, you know, there's an argument argument justifiably so don't see this as a priority or they see it as a bit of tokenism where for example there was the youth climate summit a couple of weeks ago fantastic event but a lot of teachers who engaged with that felt that their slts just used it as a tick box exercise well well done you've mm -hmm. done that pat pat there's your project for the year with no kind of reference about what actually the bigger picture is so i thought a way in to get more senior senior who don't have that geographical connections don't have that that sense of urgency of getting like SLTs and governors in board is to use a topic which can stick with them. They've safeguarding is their number one priority. Climate change is a safeguarding issue because we are getting more and more evidence that people that children and people in the United Kingdom are being directly affected by it. It is affecting mm -hmm. their physical well-being, it is affecting their mental well-being. Therefore, it is a safeguarding issue because we have to bear those those aspects in mind about their children's well-being so that was my preamble so when all those dots connected all these separate I thought right that's it we really do need, now need to make this a focus in terms of safeguarding at schools i don't think the risk is very well understood either so we talk about no. safeguarding but but risk is is not necessarily addressed either so an understanding of when somebody talks about what the risks of this and that are what that actually means exactly i mean because climate change has too long been painted as uh, an issue that's going to affect distant shores for distant shores first. So I, I was guilty of this when I was a teacher. When you looked at the impacts, it's always and and it's right to make it's right to say this. It's right to say that the more vulnerable in the world are going to be impacted first, and they're going to be impacted worse. Absolutely, but humans don't tend to connect or take action unless they can see the wood for the trees themselves unless they it's happening on their doorstep i mean you think about everything that's been happening nobody took covid seriously until it was already in europe it was a chinese problem and this is the same kind of aspect that that and of course climate change i wouldn't say it's definitely not come under the radar <laughs> as we all know in the last uh, 20 years of exposure but but it's not been given the correct exposure it's not been directly related that hey that child sitting in front of you in your classroom right now is going to be either directly or indirectly impacted by climate change. That's what we've been saying behind the scenes, all the experts, everything. Now we are starting to see these impacts. So to give an example, there was, you mentioned the GA e-conference. Um, there was one participant who responded with a comment to that survey. And, and this, this person said, um, we actually, when the flooding happened in Sheffield, in 2009 in November, um, actually, my sh one of many of our students live in unassured homes at massive risk of homelessness. And because of the floods, the River Don, etc., like that, they actually were washed out of their homes. <laughs> if that, if that's not a, if that's not evidence, and to go on for okay, so now people might be listening. So okay, Kit, I get it. But what's that got to do with climate change? So now this is the next battle, attributing to climate change. Well. I haven't looked at the most recent recent studies, but the studies that came out shortly after, one by the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, for example, um, stated this shortly after their initial preliminary analysis said that um, that the flooding of the River Don was at least consistent with what we may expect with a, uh, a warming world. Now, in scientific terms, what that means is, is that we are sure that there's a link and we are, we are almost certain that we will, over time, find some empirical evidence that will back that up. But as scientists do, they will not say categorically until they have the empirical evidence that they can have to back that up. But that is a very strong statement at a very early stage from the Center for Ecology and Hydrology. So when you, again, putting all these puzzle pieces together, it's, it's not, it is completely plausible and acceptable to say, this is an aspect, uh, this is something that's been exacerbated by climate change and your students are suffering from it. You've got to pay attention. So we're talking now of um, eco-anxiety would be uh, a term that you might use for that. Yeah, yeah. so for me, that's, that's, that's the first way in. And the reason why it's the first way in is, is, is for a good reason. And that's because uh, more of us are now taking mental health seriously. There's been so much progress made over the last decade about mental health reducing the stigma. Um, I'm someone, uh, people who know me very, very well, 
uh, know that I'm someone who very openly talks about my mental health problems that I've had. I've also just recently had training from uh, Mental Health for England, so as a mental health first aider. So those kind of courses didn't exist 10 or so years ago. We have Clover Hogan, who's doing a wonderful job with Force of Nature, um, helping young people through climate um, change-based mental health issues like eco-anxiety. And all of these, it's, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and very few people now feel scared or or reluctant to talk about mental health issues. So in my job, you mentioned about my new job as higher education champion. One of the mm. things that we now encourage students to do as they consider further in higher education is say, do not feel scared or worried about checking that box that says, do you have any you know, physical health conditions, mental health conditions? Because that is the way of the university or the, or the FE college saying to you, we want to support you, but we need to know what kind of support you need to have. So I'm wondering when that came on on forms. I mean, I don't I haven't been in John long enough. Perhaps that's a new thing on forms. Perhaps that's been around for a while. I don't know. But eco-anxiety um, is something, to go back to the initial point, eco-anxiety is something where it's, it's a good, easy in to get in with this climate change and safeguarding issue because that I mentioned there's that whole document about mental health issued by the government, mental health in schools. Again, just Google um, or Ecosia, the uh, the uh, the plant uh, tree plant in the website web search engine. If you if you search for um, gov.uk mental health in schools, you'll find this document. Um, so there's a whole massive document about mental health issues in schools, and eco eco anxiety and climate change anxiety and all these other environmental ecology based. Um, ecological based anxieties are real. There's been studies of them, like Caroline Hickman, for example, the University in Bath has done massive work with, with peers and colleagues about, about this issue. So the evidence is out there. Um, so if schools are taking this seriously uh, and are treating mental health as something that needs to be addressed, then they need to recognize that, that eco-anxiety exists and it's real. And you, and I get, I've got young people tell me all the time that they're worried about this. It's, it, the, the, the noise is deafening from how many students are worried about climate change and ecological destruction. So for me, starting with eco-anxiety is, is the best segue in because that's, it's, it's funny to say it's more tangible because obviously mental health is, is, is in a rather a thing that doesn't manifest itself physically unless, unless things progress, wor you know, worryingly for an individual. But, um, but it's something we already recognize. It's something that's prevalent in every school that you will be guaranteed there'll be a handful of students in your school, perhaps even in every class who have eco-anxiety. So, mm. That's everybody, every school touching everywhere. Whereas the student who's been flooded out because of flooding in Sheffield, very unfortunate as that is, that's obviously something that's more physical, more tangible, and the school will deal with that and support that because they have a mandate and a duty to support that student who's been made homeless because of flooding. So if we start with the eco-anxiety issue first, that's something that all schools can deal with right now as a safeguarding issue. If you're advising schools then, here's something, let's go for something practical. What do you think is safeguarding policy that includes climate change and gives regard to this? I, the work by Caroline Hickman, there was a figure there that said research studies have shown that 45% of children suffer lasting depression after extreme weather and natural disasters. Yeah. It's a huge figure. When we were talking yeah. about uh, risk and not understanding risk, that's, that's nearly 50% nearly of students. So what, what do you think a safeguarding policy should look like? What advice would you give people? Yeah, I've, I wrote in the article that, um, I mean, I've had lots and lots of safeguarding training, but I'm definitely not uh, a safeguarding professional or expert. Um, and I'm certainly, I certainly don't have the experience of, of being policy writers, policy makers. I, I, I was one of those people who was very happy in the classroom, head of department, most. Like people say, you're going to go down the SLT route kit. And you're like, nope, no barge pole coming out. Um, so with respect to what a policy should look like, uh, or how you would write it. I, I don't really want to approach it from that way. That way. I, um, so what I've done in the article, which could be read, is I've suggested certain questions that departments, that schools, SLTs, governors, um, school councils can ask themselves to inform what they will do with their safeguarding policy or how they can put that into practice. So to give you a few examples, to give you a few examples, all of these are linked to the government safeguarding, uh, keeping children safe in education document. So one question, for example, uh, that you could ask for providing a safe environment which children can learn is what messages of poverty, positivity or empowerment are being communicated? Because that's a very good um, thing that you can do to counteract you know, issues of eco-anxiety is to show the positive things that are doing and can be done. 
So the Youth Climate Summit, for example, I, I did a piece of performance poetry where young people sent me um, examples of the amazing, empowering, positive stuff that they've been doing um, as case studies. And then I weave them into this poem called Why Not Now, which, which can be searched for on, on, on uh, YouTube. Um, and, and yeah, and that was and And after that, the feedback I got from the people who run the Youth Climate Summit was that they got so much feedback uh, from students to say, wow, I feel really good. I feel positive that we can do something. Look at all these amazing things taking place. So a question like that can help. Um, another thing is what can school and college staff should and look out for? So early help, the early help aspects of that document. So asking questions like, are there students who have been directly impacted by an event attributed to climate change? So that one in Sheffield is an example. Are there children who are at greater risk to eco-anxiety and what are their risk factors? Notice that the wording there is deliberately phrasing from the safeguarding document about risk mm. factors. Um, but I think that in terms of, I think the biggest win if we're going to get climate change as safeguarding issue is treating it as what's called contextual safeguarding. So contextual safeguarding is being aware of wider environmental factors um, which are a threat to um, children's safety or their well-being. Because we can't, you know, we can't, that child who lost their home because of flooding, of course the school can't do anything about where that child lives. Of course they can't, but they can help to enhance um, protective factors and take away risk factors. So that's what we call contextual safeguarding. So things like this, is the school catchment area situated in, uh, is the school catchment situated in an area that is at risk or increasingly at risk at events attributed to climate change? And there's data and things that can be used to do that. We've already got the Environment Agency's flood maps, for example. And there's so much more coming online, which allows you to identify risks in your in your area. Keep an eye out for those. Uh, to what extent are children aware themselves of risks? And what can they do about mitigating these risks? What pedagogies are used and to topics taught that allow children and families to mitigate risks themselves? This is, uh, this is why I think that climate change and safeguarding issue is a no-brainer and is a win-win because it's not saying you've got to start mandating for this and you've got to look after your kids better because of climate change that's not the approach i want to take if you think about all those questions they're they're reflection on your practice on your pedagogies on on how you implement what you do in the classroom these are just things we do anyway they're just questions to help you with move down that route so um so yeah that would be the if i was advising schools i would probably facilitate the discussions on those questions and maybe coming up with what kind of more questions could you ask and then help them to kind of draw links into the government safeguarding um, document. So that's probably the way I, I would. I'd yeah, and it's a really effective way of doing it. So if you give somebody a policy, then they go home and they file it and it never gets mm. looked at again. That's right. But asking yeah. those questions makes them reflect in a, and it's, it's not an, it's not a, an aggressive, it's not a, it's not a difficult response in, in the sense that it's challenging. It's challenging you to think, but it's it, it's taking you somewhere where you can discuss the, the solutions. I've not expressed that very well, but it's not it's not in your face. It gives you something to think about. As you said, it's, it's, a, it's a reflective piece. So you actually you put together your own safeguarding document, which everyone's had a, a hand in. It becomes owned by everyone. Absolutely. And um, actually, I just... Um... Just a couple of days ago, uh, an ex-trainee teacher of mine, uh, Nathan Moses, um, published an interview that I did with him back in the summer where we talked about um, the question I was asked by one of his students was, um, is climate change a political issue? And I was like, crikey, that's a loaded question <laughs> to start with. But um, and the, I answered that question by saying, um, Yes, unfortunately it is, but not by the scientist's choice. Be and, the re and I think you've, you've really made a good point there, John, because because the reason you don't want to go aggressive and all in like I'm a massive supporter and and of like Greta Thunberg, uh, who's an enabler, who's a powerful voice. Um, but she gets a lot of criticism, I think unfairly, but she gets a lot of criticism for the way that she generates her message. I mean, I mean, her, her detractors, her, cr her criticizers always play on that. How dare you speech as a way to beat around the head, for example. So how and they, they go back and they mimic her or how dare you tell me how to run my life kind of kind of reaction. And the reason why I bring that point up is because if I was to go into schools and say, you've got to do this, this is what you've got to put in. Your, I'm going to have that. How dare you, Greta Thunberg, kind of uh, kind of attitude being projected onto them. But if I ask them to be reflective and be questioning, it gives them the control and the empowerment to do what they can do, bearing in mind that they know the school best. And 
and it takes it almost takes that politicalization of the issue out which is a huge undertaking because any science any science which gives a mandate for changing of attitudes behavior or lifestyles will be politicized 100% same with covid there's so much polarization about what we should be doing next because of the popularization the populist um, messages and the politicization of it all same with climate change it shouldn't be a political issue but as soon as your client your scientist says look we've got to cut down on meat we can't we need to eat less meat we need to drive less which is all scientifically backed to some effective ways of or you need to de divest from this and divest from this the big companies totally 100 got to be done but that ceo is going to say i'll put my money where i want thanks the person can say, I'm not going to give up eating meat. I'm going to keep going to McDonald's. And as, as soon as a politician goes ahead and says, I'm on your side, don't worry. If you, if you get me in, I will not um, make a, I will not start introducing a carbon tax. I will not start um, banning beef imports or something like that. Then it becomes a political issue. So you want to empower the person to, or the group or the community to investigate themselves, be introspective, and then use what they've generated to make positive steps forward so that that would be my approach in that i think that's right all of human geography is political how you perceive and how other people perceive and manage space and place all of it but um, it's it's being um it's allowing people to make up their own minds in with the the facts that are presented to them you can uh, you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts. I think somebody perfect. So once you're charged with all these facts, it's uh, it's difficult then to deny some of the courses of action. But I think there is a lot of teacher anxiety. I think there is. Yeah. How far we go as as being evangelists for this sort of thing? You've got Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and you've got Greta Thunberg, who you mentioned saying things. This was a quote: "We're no longer at the point of preventing climate disaster from happening entirely." I'm I'm, I'm already getting anxious, and I'm just reading this. Yeah, we are now at the point of minimising the damage, and, and there's the the point of risk again. Understanding what we mean by that, as these floods and storms are here. I think more and more people are going to be willing to stand up for themselves. But on the other hand, and this is where we might come into critical thinking in, in a bit. I've yep. just read an article it was on the Global Warming Policy Foundation website. So I went digging. It says official US climate data reveals no cause for alarm. So I thought, well, I'll just do a little bit more digging into this site. The honorary president is Nigel Lawson. Mm -hmm. So I'm already <laughs> putting myself into some... Um, political waters here. So how we approach it in the classroom, I think is, is perhaps a dilemma for teachers. How comfortable are we in presenting information without bias in a world of fake news, yeah. especially when students come back to us and say, well, I've just read this. I've just, we've just seen this stuff, haven't we, about the number of people who think there's a blooming chip in the, uh, yeah, in the vaccine. But that's a different story altogether. <laughs> <laughs> what, how do you see this? What's geography's contribution? to making citizens where do you start with this i mean i, I was a absolute um privilege to be part of uh, the critical thinking for achievement course that becky kitchen ran you know for ga so i was one of the trainers in that and and uh that that is something which uh, i would like to direct plenty of people to um so if they've not heard of that just search for critical thinking for achievement on the ga website you get loads of hits tips about how you can go for to critical thinking but yeah it's it, it's it's tough it's really really tough and of course um the i think something which doesn't get said very much which teachers are particularly could be particularly anxious about of course is is uh upsetting either the status quo or or upsetting maybe parents who have a very very hard line attitude on these kind of things you know um there's always that fear of like of one coming in or ringing into school saying you've been taught teaching my child this that and the other like and then you go even more people who go the extra step further and say like you're brainwashing them or something like that um it's but for me, you've, I mean, I always took this approach of teaching is you just got to stay the course and, and you've got to, as you say, you're not entitled to your, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your, to your facts. Um, and then using facts as the basis for your tasks 
for a critical thinking frame. So, so when you have someone like Nigel Lawson saying that, um, so I, I would, for example, approach that I took, and this is actually controversial in, in my school when I did this for the very first time, was I actually did show part of a debate between a climate change uh, denier and a climate scientist on, I think, I think it was the BBC, BBC News or something like that, um, a few um, a few years ago, and and like I was told, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be showing kids. I said, no, 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 we, no, you should be doing this, and then challenging the students in ways that they can pick apart both sides of the argument can they you know and, and guide them with the kind of tools and, and the resources they may need to do this um, don't have as much time for me to give examples of that but but find those tools use those tools and set them a challenge to say right you've been you've been given with two arguments can we pick apart them and and in that instance as no one would be surprised listen to this the kids were far, found it far easier to pick apart the climate change skeptic climate change deniers argument and they were able to pick apart the scientists to mark but they did they did have a it did have a bit of a benefit there is that this was like at, towards the end of the unit that we would talk so they had some knowledge and understanding that could inform you know that they could inform their 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 points of views there um so so we got that and then and then of course i gave them um we had a really good debate i do remember this quite clearly with with some very strong arguments with regards to should the bbc have even given the floor to someone like this person who's a climate change bearing in mind that you know it it's quite clear and this this in itself has been peer-reviewed that you know north of 97 percent of scientists who have expertise in this field you know are, are agree with the reasons for current climate change that is anthropogenic and the forcings that everything that can so you had you, you know that you've you've not long broadcasted that excellent podcast with Mike Maslin who talks about climate forcing and things like that. So I'd, I'd urge people to go listen to that about what climate forcing is. So, so they've looked at all of that with rigor and with data. And so I said, should the BBC therefore actually be having a, an audience-based approach where 97 of the audience are proponents of anthropogenic climate change and three are dissenters, dissenters. Isn't, wouldn't that be more balance? That's balance. Not one and one, 50-50, because that does not exist. That's, and the analogy I use with the kids is, imagine you're about to get on an aircraft and a flood of engineers come up to your captain and you go over here to conversation. 97%, 97 of those engineers turn around and say, those wings are going to fall off within the first 30 minutes of the flight. Don't get on the plane. We need to fix it. And three say, no, no, it's fine. No, get on. No, we're engineers too. We've got, we've got, the, we've got data to prove it. For, would you get on that plane? That, that's the way I frame it. But regards to the facts that you would find, so now the, now the issue is, okay, but what facts? Because the, the, you know, the, the, the incumbent, the current incumbent of the United, fortunately outgoing uh, incumbent of the United States like, helped to coin this term alternative facts. Yes. Which is, which is terrible because it's, it's almost, for me, that's almost like gaslighting about what is real and what is not real. And that's dangerous. But to claw back from that, I say, is that, okay, so where do you find those facts? And this is where us as teachers need to be confident and assured that when we give fact information, we are using authoritative sources and we stick by them. That's the key thing. So if a parent does come to you, so you're brainwashing my child, then you can say, well, actually, the facts that I've been teaching them have been verified by, and I, I, here's a list from of, of U.S., American scientific societies, you know, the facts I've been given have been verified by NASA, by the American Association for Advancement of Science, by the American Ke uh, Chemical Society, by the American Geophysical Union, by the American Meteorological Society, by the Geological Society of America, and, you, you know, by the National Academy of Sciences, by the National Geographic, by NOAA, by IPCC. And as soon as you start, now, either they're all in a conspiracy, <laughs> a global conspiracy, <laughs> or they know what they're talking about. And then when you run the list and say, well, dissenters, you know, you've got, uh, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of the things, like the Americans for Prosperity, you've got uh, Beacon Hill Institute of Suffolk University, because they've got university in their name, they're listened to quite a fair bit, the Cato Institute, and then the Heartland Institute, which is actually a social pressure group, nothing to do with climate science. Um, and then when you look at, and then there have been studies that have been made, like who who's on the board of those things and where their funding has come from. And the vast majority of those I've just mentioned actually have their funding who from ExxonMobil, for example. So then when you, so, and then it's just being steadfast in sticking by that, not backing down and saying, yeah, I should give the other side. It's like, no, the vast, vast, vast majority in scientific terms, it is beyond doubt, this is what's happening. And 
we are, you know, we are an establishment of producing the facts and then students can develop their own opinions based on the facts. So, but it is tricky and it is anxiety um, uh, producing without a shadow of a doubt. And I don't want to invalidate anybody's feeling on, on that whatsoever because it's real. <laughs> when you did the critical thinking course, did you find that teachers were uncomfortable about feeling as though they were pushing on the side of the argument? Yeah. I, I, sometimes I did, even yeah. though we all, we're all sitting there agreeing that 97, well, it's more than that, isn't it now? It's more than 97% of scientists. But, oh, I don't know whether I should be making the, making the students' minds up is how they saw it. it. It's a tricky one. What you've been saying, I think, is, is, is fascinating. And giving them the, that plain analogy, I think, is a, it's a really good way of, of, of showing that because they still don't get that risk idea necessarily. And, and teachers feel uncomfortable about thinking somebody somewhere thinks I'm, I'm pushing an agenda. Mm. Yeah, and, and again, as I've, as I've already alluded to, and a lot of people who know me know that I'm, I'm very, very open with me as a person and how I feel. And like, I get this every, every single day as a, as a member of the trans community, you know, where if, if you think a couple of years ago, there was that foray or in the schools in Birmingham, because they were doing their, their their lessons about about gender identities and that there are lots of different range of people and then you know I, I, and I just thought to myself I felt crushed by that as as a member of the LGBT community because these parents are basically arguing against my existence but I felt but I felt it doubly so as a teacher because all those teachers would want to do is just teach that there are a variety of people in the world mm-hmm. and you get people who feel you know people who are cisgendered because they feel they feel uh, they are who they were signed at birth. You get people who are transgender. You get people who are in between the non-binary. You get, and and as a geographer, the what beauty there is around the world of of, of multiple genders, like like two spirit people, you know, in the indigenous areas of of, of North America, for example, or or all of those uh, that gender diversity in the Pacific nations, for example. What what a beautiful thing, and that all they all have their culture and their so. Why should teaching that about those particular issues, whether it's whether it's gender identity or whether it's climate change, because they are fact and they are truth. It's such a shame that they, they drive anxiety because of the, again, what linking back to the politicization and, and the fear of what, what someone may say. So it does need the, it does need SLT to support teachers. So an anxious teacher should go, shouldn't need to do this, of course, but an anxious teacher should be able to go to an SLT and say, and not ever get permission to teach about climate change ever. They should go to say, look, I'm just doing my job. I'm a geographer. I'm teaching the science and I'm getting a bit of aggro from this parent. I need your support, please. And it needs the, the, the school to turn and say, look, our geography teacher is a specialist. They've got training in this kind of thing. They know to sort the wheat from the chaff, things like that. We back them 100%. And we appreciate that you have your views and opinions, but unfortunately, well, don't have to use the word unfortunately, but, but from what we see, the evidence and the factual information does not support your opinion. And therefore we, we, we are fully behind that. So it doesn't, it needs, it needs that uh, respect as well. It needs, needs support from the top. So I just thought I'd add, add that little bit of personal perspective there. Now, these are, these are complicated issues and, and so they make for more complicated lesson preparation. You've got to be on top of the resources. You've got to have a, a good sense of mm. being able to give a balance. And I, I've been, I've been trolling through, some of the resources that you've been producing, you've produced some marvellous ones, which I'd like to, we will link to those. But the one that you're doing at the moment is a Geography at Home pack, isn't it? Yeah. You're in the, I'm not sure quite when that one will be out, but coming soon. So, so that's for, well, you talk us through it. What's happening? Yeah. Um, oh, no, it's been an absolute, um, yeah, thanks to the GA for allowing me to produce this. So, so um, I could have taken many, many approaches to this This learning at home, this geography at home, climate change pack. So it's, it's, it's split into two parts. One is about causes and effects uh, from climate change. The other one is about mitigation and adaptation and responses and, and how to move forward. So, um, and it's based on, on the UK GCSE syllabuses. It can be used at A-level. It's mostly focused around AQA, but again, all, almost all the, U, uh, the GCSE syllabuses in the UK will mm-hmm. cover things almost in a similar fashion. And I, and I thought, okay, so... And I had so many different ways I could approach this. Like, should I take a, a really rigorous critical thinking approach to that? Um, I thought I could do. Um, let's think about that. And I thought, right, can I, can I give like positive spirit? I thought I could do. 
you know, and I want to give out shout out to other teachers who have made resources to that effect. So like Paul Turner's done a very, very good climate change resource, for example, for Key Stage 3, I believe, which has a lot of positive messages in it. So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel there. Um, so I thought, okay, no, listen, I don't want to fall foul of being that person who has a degree in environmental science with specialization in meteorology and climatology. So I know what I'm talking about. And I've worked with climate scientists. I've been very lucky to work with climate scientists in the UK, in the United States directly. Um, and I don't want to produce something thinking everyone else knows what I'm talking about. That would be a fallacy. So I just went back to basics and I went straight for, okay, this is what climate change is. This is the base. This is climate change 101, but then layering it continually layering up the challenge to go deeper and deeper and deeper so it is as close to the robust science as I possibly can make it but without losing sight of this some people are coming to this student for a new time so the way that I built those resources is basically right starting from scratch and so I know what temperature anomalies are and what they mean in context and what they mean for the Paris Agreement but if I say temperature anomaly to a teacher let alone a year seven eight nine gee they'll be like what they probably might not have even heard the word anomaly before so I had to backtrack and say, okay, and then I, I did, for example, I did a little visual diagram to explain what an anomaly is, because it is a very important term in climate science. This is how we get the staying below plus two degrees, because that's an anomaly, to plus two degrees above um, the, I think it's the 1850 to 1900 baseline average. So I had to explain what that is. So that's the approach I took. Um, but I did weave in some aspects of critical thinking here and there, and I did weave in like the very last lesson, for example, um, on the mitigation and adaptation was a positive one. And it's all about actions that you can take as an individual. So it's a really lovely, fun little checklist for students to do that say, I already do this. And, and hopefully there's, and it's all about normalizing being an imperfect, um, an imperfect person with dealing with climate change. Because if we're all imperfect dealing with this, we'll get it done. If some of us are perfect, we'll stress ourselves out, cause more anxiety and nothing will get done. But if we can all be imperfect, great. And then at the end of it, the, 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 the back end of that page is all about their self-care and mental health and eco-anxiety. So I use Clover Hogan stuff to say, okay, let's go through some mindfulness activities, how you can feel more positive about addressing climate. So I did weave in those aspects into yeah. just the science, the robustness. And I've used, I used GIS, I've used decision-making exercises. I did, I, did, I did do a practice exam question there. So I did all that. It's standard for the course, but um, yeah, I'm really excited for that to come out. And, uh, and I know that there's reassurances made that, that the, the GA are working very busily to get that out as soon as possible. So I, I appreciate that. And I thank them for that. Well, I thought it was wonderful. I, uh, I don't teach anymore. And uh, I was thinking, oh, crikey, this would have been just gold dust for me. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it. So I think you've done really well with that. I, I really like it. I think it's like 16 lessons long or something like that it's a proper scheme of work yeah and you could dip in if you wanted to if it's modular got, if you've got yep. eight lessons well yeah you, you use the bit that you can do right it's, you it's can pick out fantastic. individual activities or individual aspects it's very very much there's, there's a couple which say if, you know and i've been careful the language to say it'd be you know it'd be useful to kind of refer back to this but it's very very modular that people can pick out and slot into whatever they're doing You've got lots of examples on your blog and um, lots of different lesson ideas, which, as I said earlier, we'll, we'll do the links to all of them. And we've talked, we've weaved critical thinking through all of this because both of us did that critical thinking work for the GA. But I just thought I'd, I'd pause and as we did when we ran the course and ask teachers what they thought critical thinking is and just throw that back at you and say, what, what now that you've done the course, what should critical thinking look like in geography? Oh, good question. Um, what should it look like in geography? Um, so that's a really good way. You got me stumped there because because it's not that I can't think of one th one thing. I've got too many things that I can pick up. Really, uh, it's it's it should be it should be one of those core values. You know, we all come up with those 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 core values of. And, and there's those classic ones which which are mandated like place space and you know physical pro but it should actually be one of those core values and it should underpin absolutely everything you do there should be an element of critical thinking throughout the whole scheme work it should be ingrained in culture and embedded from year seven upwards it should well it should go as far you know and it, you should work with your cluster schools to see you know kids being prepped for it up there um and it really should be used as the, one of these other tools which you are trying to get geographers to be anyway and that is to 
being quite, you know, be inquisitive about the world, be curious mm. about the world, because that's what geography is all about. Geography is too broad for any of us. That's why we have so many specialisms. And when I started teaching, I was a physical geographer. I was a meteorologist mostly with a little bit of other things here and there. I was petrified teaching things like human geography and whatnot. But what really helped me to kind of get to know those topics was not necessarily teaching them, but was also taking that critical, critical thinking, inquisitive approach and questioning, you know, oh, OK, so you want me to teach this thing about Nigeria? Or you want me to teach this thing about the Rostov model or stuff like that? Some things I was looking at for the very first time in some respects. I was like, but I, didn't li I don't like this but I've got to teach it for GCSE, you know? So then I'm then taking a critical thinking approach to, to how I teach it as well as make sure I hit those tick, tick yeah. marks for okay. what's going to be an exam. But, and then, so for me, it's model. I suppose the other thing I could have said was, which I'll just allude to is, is modeling, which is a very big thing at the moment. There's lots of example, lots of teachers are doing lots of fantastic modeling uh, and just being a, a critical thinker yourself in front of the students, um, it doesn't have to be like a paper-based exercise or an activity or a homework. It could simply be the way that you frame everything and you talk in the classroom. And so it, it sounds like a cop-out here because I'm not, not being specific to geography, but it's really a geographical thing because of geographical reasoning and critical thinking is, is a transferable skill to everybody. So if you can model that in the classroom and get your kids to be critical thinkers, they'll become better geographers as well. So I've, I've actually flipped your question on its head in a way, haven't I? Well, no, weaving through everything that you've said uh, as being that criticality. Where have you got that from? How do you know that it's robust? Challenging everything. And, and I keep using David Lambert's phrase, because I think it's a wonderful one. Yeah. Making decisions with confident uncertainty and knowing that you may have to change your mind in the light of new information, I think. Good. Right, I'm going to ask you one last question because we're running out of time because you've got to clear off in a bit. I must and, and I could keep you talking forever. And but... I could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to look up to the future because there Go is, on. it is sometimes gloomy talking about climate change. One of, my, one of my mates who I used to teach with was in touch not that long ago saying he still felt anxiety about it because he didn't want to upset the children, but his feeling himself was not quite that we're doomed. We're not <laughs> far off. <laughs> so, right, okay. <laughs> what's your key advice to teachers? They're preparing to teach controversial issues like climate change. And how do they, how do they stop themselves feeling, oh, this, I'm going to really upset the children here? Um, yeah, it, I, it's tough. Look, uh, first, thing I, first thing I was... I'd say towards those teaching stuff like that is like, please do allow yourself to accept that that's, that's a feeling that you're going to feel. It is, it is overwhelming, you know? And um, so first of all, is come, come to peace with the fact that that's the fact and that's truth. Um, so, so really the, the question really should be is not so much how you're not going to feel it yourself because you are going to feel it and you should feel it. And the question is how are you going to manage that and how are you going to try and not project too much of your anxiety onto the children who are going to be feeling it anyway. So you don't want to be doubling up their anxiety, right? Um, so um, what what I would say to to those kind of things is have a bit of fun with with the lessons that you teach about climate. So one example was uh, I was teaching year eights about climate change, and I th and I just it was one off. I didn't plan it. It was one off. I thought I just finished coming out of a drama lesson, and I said, uh, you know what, let's try something different here, and I taught the lesson. And I, 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 I think I overdid it. And I basically said, um, I've got confession to make all of you. You know, we've been doing this unit about climate change. Um, and you've been hearing on the news recently about how it's a global scam and it's a conspiracy. I, I can't keep it to myself anymore. It, it's true. I'm part of this global conspiracy. It's, I've, I've, I have to confess. And, I, and I went, my drama training kicked in and I think I overdid it. And I spent the whole lesson almost like a confession and then telling, and then telling you know, what's really going on. And as the lesson went on, you could see some kids are clicking about what's going on. Like, hang on a minute. I think Mix Rackley's playing us here. <laughs> but, um, but, and then, so, so I said, I'll tell you what, let's throw climate change out the window. Let's do other reasons why we might cut down on carbon dioxide emissions. And I don't want any mention of climate change because I've told you it's fake, right? So by the end of the lesson, we came up with five or six reasons why you should cut down your carbon emissions like ocean acidification, you know, because it, everyone's in their cars, they're not exercising, whereas if they're out on the bike, they're getting fit. So, so all these, and then the kids were really engaged about, yeah, we should cut down on carbon dioxide, don't worry about carbon. And then, and then as they were leaving the classroom, I said, oh, by the way, you, 
you do know my second subject is drama, don't you? And I'm a, and they're like, and then there's a lot of them said, yeah, we figured it out, don't worry. And then some other kids went, <laughs> oh my god, you're so Dumb. mean. <laughs> so, um, but but they but they left the classroom feeling a lot more energized and enthusiastic, and I had fun. Because I was, I was having a rotten day and I just wanted to take a different direction. So, so if any of your teachers, you know, find some fun way of doing things. Teach, when you teach about the solutions, be positive. Give, give um, find examples of what's happening. Like project um, drawdown.org is a really good website because it tells you about all these climate change solutions in a really positive, vibrant way, in a way that you can build case studies out of. And that's a brilliant one. Um, the Why Not Now um, poem and the Youth Climate science uh, youth climate summit that i mentioned perfect because there's so many full of positive stories of things that are taking place um and things like and things like that uh yeah and just a bit of self-care basically allow yourself to feel anxious talk to other teachers colleagues peers family members who are feeling it too um tell them why you're anxious um and allow yourself to take control of that anxiety so um one of the things I did in the mental health training, which was fantastic for the mental health first aider, is thinking of your stress as, as a bucket that fills up. So all your stresses go into this bucket. And of course, once it overflows, that's the point where you can't cope, you know, panic attacks, anxieties, mental, whatever it is. But you can, you can either have false taps, which is like drinking excessive alcohol, which work for a little bit, but feedback, all those kind of things. So what you want to do is that you want to open those coping taps to to drain that bucket as much as you can. And so having fun with your lessons, with with, with the, you know, it could be getting the kids to write a climate change rap. And I don't know, it, you know, it doesn't have to be just something, a silly method of delivering the message. Um, try, try to avoid um, documentaries that are all doom and gloom. Even, stick to the facts, stick to the science, mm. not those documentaries that are like, dun, 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 you know, you know, and that's, that's why it's, a sh that's why Greta Thunberg's message was perfect and on point, but the, how dare you kind of delivery although necessary and important, doesn't exactly feed very well into mitigating anxiety, for example. So try and steer away from those, but continue to plug the message in a positive way, not to mitigate the fact that it's, it is a dire issue, because it is a dire issue, but you don't have to learn about it in a dire way. Yeah. So that would, be my, that would be my advice. And I'd like to take my own advice every now and then as well. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I've had fun. I've had fun listening and I'll get into trouble if I carry on for much longer because, uh, as I say, I've, you've got to go. That's been absolutely wonderful. We, we could have carried on for another couple of hours. Oh, I've really enjoyed myself, John. Thank you so much for having me. No, oh, well, thank you. I, I, I just pop a couple of questions out and you do the rest. It's been fascinating. And we'll put all the links because I know you've got some wonderful resources for teachers thank you. that they can just lift Yep. So we'll, we'll do the links to the blogs yep. and we'll do the links to the various... And it's all freely accessible. I don't I don't charge a penny for anything I'll put on my blog. Um, if people want to... I have, I have something a bit like a Patreon called a coffee. If people want to contribute a pound here and there, that's up to them. But, you know, they can make that decision for themselves. But, yeah, they can go along and then have a look and see what they find useful. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Jog Pod. During these challenging times... Don't forget the wealth of resources available on the GA website, geography.org.uk, including our teaching resources which are currently free to access for all. You might also want to look at our Geography from Home section, which aims to support teachers, parents and guardians whilst children and young people are learning from home. There's also a growing selection of web inquiries, online events and quizzes all available for free on our new sister site, geographyeducationonline.com dot org.